You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Worship Review. I'm Colin and I am a history professor at a large Midwestern university in the United States. I never say in the United States, but uh, for all of you Canadians, and there are some Canadians who do listen to this show, pleasingly enough, I don't mean the Midwest of Canada, the Midwest of the United States, although we have nothing but love. Nothing but love, eh? Sorry. <laughs> Nothing but love for the Canadians. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I'm joined by my co-host, Tyler. I am Tyler. I'm a PhD student at the same institution in the American Midwest. Yeah. What do you work on, Tyler? I work on linguistics and particularly Germanic languages. He can point out the meanings not only of any word that ever shows up in any worship song, but he can explain how the grammar affects the way that those words should be interpreted. It's fantastic. I do love grammar, and but I have to say, Colin, I, I'm not always sure what the meanings of the words used are. I could, I could, That's we true. can point to the various things that a word could mean, but that does not mean what no. it means in no, context. It, I guess that's kind of one of the jokes of the show, I suppose, that we haven't gotten into, which is you have a person who's an expert in language, and you have another person who's an expert in like the first three centuries AD, the beginning of the church, and yet. We can't always figure out what's being said in these worship songs. Yeah, but we do our best. Uh, so, what we do on this podcast is we listen to a contemporary Christian worship song. We'll, we'll do other songs. We'll do, we might do contemporary Christian music broadly. We might do some hymns at, at a future date. But right now, we're going through the top songs in uh, the CCLI list, which is a list of songs that are being sung in the church and reported as being sung in the church. So, these these are songs that are wildly popular. So, we go through those songs, we and we pick them apart. We think about what's happening in the song, who the song's about, and we also look into their clarity and their comparison with Scripture, and we give a rating for the song. And we've been really grateful for the folks that have been listening to the podcast. We wanted to encourage you to let your friends know, let worship leaders that you know about this podcast. We really want this to be a resource that will be helpful to them. Maybe even non-Christians could find it interesting. I suspect they will, because I've I've known some non-Christians and good friends of mine who've had similar concerns about Christian worship music. Yeah. Obviously not concerned with theology, but concerned with coherence. Yeah. And uh, while you're at it, consider leaving a review for the podcast on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah. And give us a, a favorable review we ask and leave a few few words. And don't forget that you can email us with feedback as well. Yeah, we would like at some point to do an episode which responds to uh, feedback. We've already gotten some uh, from various folks that have listened. And so we'd, we'd like to uh, add some more to that and get enough that we could do actually maybe an episode on that. So do please send in your feedback to feedback at theworshipreview.com. Yeah, and the reason we do that is because whereas my word is gospel, Colin sometimes <laughs> says things that aren't true. Right. And so people are upset and have to seek clarification. <laughs> That's right. Don't, don't send any critical feedback of Tyler because if you have any critical feedback of him, you are automatically in the wrong. Yeah. He's infallible. That's right. In this and podcast. In yeah. That's right. Today we are going to be looking at the song How Deep the Father's Love for Us by Stuart Townend. How deep the Father's love for us. 
It's beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure Tyler, let's kick off by starting with the most basic question we can ask about this song. Who or what is the song about? There are two answers to this. The first is mine, and the second one is the author's. So, the author gave a very good interview. It's on YouTube, and it's under his own own name. And he said that he sought to reconcile and balance God's need for wrath over sin with a serious study of what it would have cost him to do that uh, and and sacrifice his only son. And the video is actually pretty interesting. It's very interesting. I'd suggest you go watch it um, because he said he wanted to consider what it cost the father to give the son. And so there's this very impassioned um, principle behind it. So I would say this song is a detailed praise of God. It exists for the Christian, marveling at the wondrous love of God and the selflessness of Christ. So we begin astonished at the greatness and depth of God the Father's love. For us, as demonstrated by giving of God the Son to save us sinners. It then moves to a clear picture of the atonement, where we see God's love laid out. And it ends on a note of further continued wonder at how we can benefit from Christ's sacrifice and a longing to boast in Christ alone and not in anything of ourselves. And so just as this atonement and the reconciliation and the salvation was accomplished without any of our help, indeed, we contributed to the awful circumstances that led to it, so also shall we boast only in Christ. The song almost reminded me, everything you said seems right to me. It almost reminded me you were too young for this, but I grew up in the 80s and there were these cartoons, there were probably more than one even, where kids would get sent back in time to watch things from the Bible. And as you listen to this song, the lyrics are such that it seems to almost describe a person almost being transported to the hill of Calvary. And they're actually witnessing kind of what's happening. And then eventually they start participating, then having this realization. It, it And it just, it seems almost like a kind of word picture. You don't just go back and witness what's happening. He sees himself as complicit. That's right. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is in this song, we have a few very beautiful poetic devices, some illustrative parallels, like in the sacrifice of this one divine son, many sons are brought to glory. So we have the death of this one God-man, and from that death, many are brought to life. And again, we have another parallel, such as Christ's dying breath, then bringing me life. And so we have this very clear exchange and parallel. Um, There's no boasting in the self, but only in Christ. And I would say we learn quite a bit, or at least this song is, is quite didactic. This song is trying to teach us some things. It tries to teach us about God. It tries to teach us about Christ. It tries to teach us about man. So it teaches us that God the Father loves us deeply. It teaches us uh, that 
God the Son has earned a great reward for his obedient sacrifice in bearing our sin. We learn that man is a wretch and a scoffer, and not in an abstract sense, but in a deeply personal sense that each individual should see himself as that man. Uh, We know that because the singer uses first-person pronouns, Mm -hmm. uh, I hear my mocking voice. Uh, We also learn that Christ's atonement is all-sufficient and that it is finished. This this song is laced with these completed, uh, grammatically perfect verbs. Perfect in the sense of completed, accomplished. I know that it is finished. Mm-hmm. And we learn that we are now, because of Christ's obedience and sacrifice, we are now God's treasure. In songs that are about our sin causing the need for an atonement, I think we, we actually sometimes forget to emphasize that surely we we sin we continue to sin um, but Christ has atoned for all of that and so now we are we are God's treasure yeah it is unfortunately rare to find in Christian music Christian worship music such a clear portrayal of the the responsibility that we hold for our sin so often sin if it even is named as such is portrayed as just kind of shame, negative feelings, darkness. Darkness. Mm-hmm. There's just kind of a badness, and then God comes and there's goodness. And there's no sense as to how the badness got there. there there's a, a lot of Christians, and I'd say this is probably finally going out of style, but for about 10 years, the churches that I was in and the denominations that I was a part of and the the circles that I ran in, could not stop using the word broken or brokenness to talk about things. And that's okay in the sense that, yep, the world is broken. Sin is a kind of brokenness. But rarely would that term be accompanied by the reality that we broke it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's just It just would sort of describe it already broken mm-hmm. as though we just found it that way or just that uh th- that our inherited sin from adam yeah. has made us broken and and omitting the fact that we continue to sin uh willfully from our own sinful hearts yeah and this song gets at that my sin upon his shoulders ashamed i hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So you're going through the song, you're singing it, and you, you're you seeing Christ on the cross, and you're looking at this happen, but you're not merely passively watching it. Yes. You're actually, you're part of, of what's happening to him. Yeah. And I really like that. And it's it's a fine line to walk because we are, when we sing this song, claiming responsibility for doing something, but it's something that we actually have done. Obviously, we haven't literally transported through time and mocked Christ, but how many of us have used the Lord's name in vain, mm. have used God's name as a swear word and mocked it? Mm. How many of us have denied Christ to our friends we have mocked, we have joined with the scoffers. And so we can sing that line and know that we're culpable. I can remember talking to a friend in college. She um, she came from a Catholic tradition 
she encouraged me at one point to think of Christ on the cross and ask myself who I would be. And she said, wouldn't you be Mary weeping at the foot of the cross? When you pray, see yourself there, weep with Mary. And I I could see where she was coming from, but I also, I said to her at this time, I would actually probably see myself as one of the centurions or one of the uh, mockers or one of the people who divided his clothes because, not because I like that or because I I am a murderous man now, but because I'm not just a passive onlooker Mm. at what happened on the cross. I am actually one who has brought it to happen Mm. by what I've done. And just to go back to something else you said too, I love the connection in the song between the father. So we're introduced to the father, how deep the father's love for us. But then the first time God's fatherhood is mentioned, it talks about he should give his only son. So the first introduction we have to the to the father is, here's what he did. He gave his son. And you're thinking like, well, wait a second, how is this a fatherly thing? But then as, as you said, we read in the next stanza that he did this to bring many sons to glory. So he's he's the father of Christ and his he loves Christ. And he's also our father and through Christ brings us into glory. So it's a song about God's fatherhood, both to Christ and to us. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Tyler, what is happening in the song? First, I'll say how things are happening, and they are happening in a way that they are brought to completion. So, for example, it is finished, uh, or until it is accomplished, his wounds have paid my ransom. So, these are all examples of actions, but they're not just actions that are taking place in an indefinite way. They're actions that um, are or are going to be brought to full completion. Uh, God gave his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That happens. Uh, The father turns his face away at Mm -hmm. one point in the song, and I'd like to come back to that later. Mm -hmm. Um, The chosen one is marred by wounds as many sons are brought to glory. There's a man on a cross, clearly Christ, bearing my sin, and my sin also holds him to the cross. We have these two metaphors of, you know, the the, the weight on his shoulders and also the the uh, the nails that pierce his hands. Mm-hmm. I am mocking among the scoffers. Obviously, like you said, not literally, but figuratively, I am present, and also in a, in the sense of culpability, mm-hmm. I am culpable of that. Christ's dying breath has brought me life, and his wounds have paid my ransom. And I will not now boast in anything but Jesus Christ. Um, And in this miraculous sense, I somehow gain from Christ's obedience, even though not only did I not deserve it, but I deserved what he got. (laughs) I deserved death. Mm -hmm. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. So we have the individual occasionally acting in this song. He acts when he mocks and calls out among the scoffers. 
Then we have another action by the individual singing the song, and that is that they will not boast in their gifts, their power, or wisdom, but they will boast in Jesus Christ. So when you actually have action here, it's still resting in the action of Christ. How interesting there, too, that we would boast in the death of our Lord, not just in his resurrection, but we would boast in his death. Mm Mm-hmm as the clear atonement for our sins and our wickedness. I actually wanted to talk a bit about the atonement in this yes. song. and uh, Maybe now's a good time to do that. Yeah, there's a line, his wounds have paid my ransom. I think this clearly states that Christ's death was meant to be a ransom payment for us, and that Christ is a substitute on which the punishment of God for the sin and the sin's of the elect uh, Mm -hmm. is laid down. And then also we individuals receive by propitiation, his holiness and righteousness. So what's called the great exchange. Yes. And if we think about Townend's other songs, one of which we even looked at already in Christ alone, and folks could go back and listen to that episode, that penal substitutionary atonement theory it's, it's pretty strong in that song. Mm-hmm. So, so strong to the to the point that some denominations which don't ascribe to that theory have sought to change the words of that song. So it seems likely that Townend is talking about penal substitutionary mm-hmm. atonement here. Is that what you were going to suggest? Yeah, probably that. It could also be satisfaction theory because if, if I think about the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid, that doesn't necessarily sound like uh, an exchange, a substitution of okay. my sins for someone, but um, it's it's clear that he's he's well within an orthodox theory of yeah. of the atonement in this song. Mm-hmm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the the substi- not substitution, excuse me, the satisfaction theory of atonement remains the dominant one in the Catholic Church to ah, this day. Okay, whereas I think penal substitutionary atonement would be the dominant one in the kind of evangelical conservative evangelical church, yeah. reformed churches, certainly. So various Presbyterian denominations and ba- some Baptist denominations. Yeah. In the denominations that are interested in articulating it clearly too. Not yeah. all are. That's true. You could probably go to some denominations and hear one theory of the atonement one week and one theory of the atonement another week, perhaps. Possibly. Uh, there's, of course, some. Lo- there's a line in this song that is also seems to address issues of atonement, which maybe we should talk about. And that gets us to our third question is when we think about the consistency and the coherence and the clarity, and also in a lot of ways, the comparison with scripture. So I think it's worth bringing up. How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away as wounds which mother chosen one bring many sons to glory. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Now, I've sung this song great many times. I've led this song. In fact, this was a song that when I was first leading worship in a church which certainly made great efforts to think carefully about the songs it selected. Nevertheless, picked a lot of songs that now I would not feel comfortable doing. But I remember doing this song and just being 
so affected by it. And now I know it's because the gospel comes across so strongly and how deep the Father's love for us. So I've always had this real attachment to this song, but only very recently have I begun to think about this line. And I know that you've thought about it too, Tyler. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. What do you think of that line as the, the, that the Father turns his face away? I would say it's a very commonly held view in many evangelical, many Reformed churches today. What do you think it means? I think it means that uh, when Christ cries out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That um, he is, he has been forsaken on the cross as uh, according to Old Testament prophecy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that God has, in his wrath over our sin, uh, has literally forsaken Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. There are some passages which would seem to line up with this idea that God has turned his face away in the sense that God has in some way severed himself. And and Townend in this song uses the line prior to that, how deep the pain or how great the pain of searing loss. And searing, of course, is a it's creating a barrier, you know, through through means of pain, through means of burning, fire. And so the searing pain that Christ experienced, the Father turns his face away and then wounds mar the chosen one. So you have verse you have passages like Galatians 3, verse 13, which you referenced by referencing the Old Testament quotation of this. But Paul in, in, in Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, presumably Christ, the iniquity of us all. So these words would certainly make it seem like it's plausible, at least, that not only did Christ suffer punishment, but God actually, as part of that punishment, forsook him. Mm-hmm. And then Christ, of course, obviously quoting Psalm 22, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those verses and how they connect to this line in the song? I think that those verses clearly demonstrate that Christ suffered a weight and a burden of sin that mm-hmm. no man could ever, ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and not obviously not for his own sin, but for on our behalf. I think that this interpretation of those verses is well-intentioned because it wants to it wants to point at the heinousness of sin and the utter inability of sin to dwell with God. And I respect that tendency. Now, just to clarify on that, Tyler, so you're saying that part of the view here of the father turning his face away is that the father has to turn his face away because Jesus becomes sin in the way that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I could see people advocating for this quite serious <clears throat> severing idea as saying, yeah, we have that right there. He became sin. And so if Christ becomes sin, God cannot abide mm-hmm. sin. And so therefore has to sever mm-hmm. uh, in a way, maybe even the Trinity, 
which is an interesting proposition. There are some very good reasons to call the thought of the father turning his face away from the son suspect. Number one, Christ quotes here from Psalm 22, as you mentioned, includes specific elements that prophesy of Christ's atonement. Mm -hmm. This psalm does. Psalm 22 includes desperate cries in the midst of turmoil and being surrounded by your foes and persecution. Mm -hmm. But in verse 19 of the psalm, it shifts. There's a very important shift. There's a turning point where the psalmist remembers God's faithfulness and demonstrates salvation. Mm -hmm. Not only does verse 24 state that God has not hidden his face from the afflicted one, it states that God heard his cry and will answer with salvation. Yeah. I'll read the last half. I'll read the last half of the psalm and ask yourself, is this a psalm of someone who has been forsaken by God? Yeah, cut off. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of my congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. When he cried to him, this is not a severing. That's not what's being described here. And verse 24 is so clear that he has not hidden his face. God has not forsaken this person, right? God has not forsaken Christ. Because the psalm has so many elements of prophecy about Christ on the cross, I think we have to take all of it seriously, not just yes. one line. Yes. It's also fascinating to me that both in Psalm 22 and when it is quoted in Matthew 27, 6, Christ says, my God, my God. And who could say my God, but somebody who is connected with God, right? Yes, it it inherently contradicts the idea that this person has been forsaken. Yes. Indeed. So, what do you think Christ means when he says, why have you forsaken me? I suspect that in his dying moments, this psalm of praise to God the Father amidst great suffering and turmoil was brought to his lips out of a desire not to despair in sin, Mm -hmm. but to, even with his dying breath, to praise his Father Mm -hmm. for his faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, he, he says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but I would argue that just as the psalmist had not been forsaken, so had Christ also not been forsaken in yeah. saying that. Uh, what do you think he might mean by that? 
So rather than try to read the mind of God, what I can say, I can say people may misinterpret forsakenness and give it this theological weight when it doesn't necessarily carry that theological weight. There are places, for example, in scripture where uh, in Jeremiah, for example, where God is heavily criticizing Israel and actually saying that he's cut them off. And or will cut them off. Now, we know that in fact, in the big picture sense, God doesn't cut them off in the in the meaning of that term to mean like in a permanent way. Like he 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 will, there's a remnant, for example. Like that's a spiritual principle that even when Israel completely rejects God, God is still. God is still providing for them. Even for the sheep that are lost, God is still going after them. Even for the prodigal, whom the father allows, like the father allowed the prodigal son to go off. When the prodigal returns, the father welcomes him back. But you could say in a sense that the father forsook the son to his own devices, right? To his own Less. Now, Christ wasn't forsook to his own lust, but he was forsook to suffering, to agony, to, to bearing the, the cross. And we see part of that when Christ is in the garden. So, when Christ says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ is anticipating what's going to happen to him. He goes to it. It's his joy to go to it for our sake. As Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, for example, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Christ knows that he's going to endure the cross. And in that sense, God forsook him to the cross. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God forsook him and turned his face away. Because in the same Psalm, it says that God doesn't hide his face from him. And even in the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We still have my God. So in my view, like you said, you can't just read that. You just can't take that word forsook or forsaken and apply this theological concept for it. I don't think you have the rationale to do that, not only within the context of the psalm, but just within the broader context of scripture and how scripture des- describes what happens on the day of atonement on 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 the day that that Christ dies on the cross it's just clear that what god forsakes christ to is not a kind of eternal separation but god forsakes christ to the consequences of sin on the cross and i think another reason to reject the idea of god turning his face away that you hinted at earlier is that the eternal unity of the triune God cannot be separated. Yeah. Uh, it, God would cease to be triune if that were the case. Yes, he would be either multiple gods, like he would be, we would be tritheists or something. Yeah. You know? And, how, and if you separate someone from the Trinity, how do you bring them back in? Like, could somebody else be brought back in? How? how yes. Like, there are real, there are some real theological issues with, as you said, what is a well-intentioned desire to make the consequences of sin understood, but not at the cost of a core doctrine like the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I much prefer the take that John Owen had on this uh, passage in Scripture, that, that God was actually more pleased with Christ's mm-hmm. obedience. Think about that. 
more pleased with Christ's obedience than he was displeased with all the sins of those he came to save. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I agree. I agree with John Owen. And tr- trust me, John Owen thinks that our sins are heinous. Believe me. Mm-hmm. I believe that our sins are heinous, more heinous than even we imagine now and can understand. And even so, the God man obeying his father. And they they have the same will, right? So he also shares this will, the same natural will to bring these sons to glory, will endure the wrath of God for our sake. And God is more pleased with him for that reason. Which makes it all the more powerful because this is not Christ like being forsaken like almost against his will, right? It's not, God doesn't have to forsake Christ. The Godhead doesn't have to sunder because Christ himself shares the will of the Father. The view that I think you and I are putting forward here reinforces the Trinity. It's immutability, um, it's unity, um, it's coherence, right? It, it gets to the idea that, no, for the joy set before him, Christ does this willingly, and so there's no need to sever Christ because the Godhead is pleased with the plan being carried out. How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns his face away So you start out with how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond our measure, and the Father is still the, the kind of the main character. Mm-hmm that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure, how great the pain of searing loss. There's no reason there that we should assume that the the viewpoint has switched. So the loss must be the father's loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. It doesn't nullify anything we've said about the argument for him turning his face away for its biblical uh, and theological merit, but it does explain one further reason why the songwriter is arguing that the father would turn his face yeah. away. It's really that he can't bear to look upon what his yeah. wrath is doing to his son. Yeah. Okay, but this would be a good time for me to talk about the uh, traditional orthodox view of divine impassibility. Please do. <laughs> that is that that God may not be subject to passions in the same way that humans are, in the same way that uh, bio, um, biological organisms are, that we experience external forces and then react to that. If it gets cold, we feel cold. If it gets hot, we feel hot. If someone strikes us, we get angry. That that God cannot be acted on in the same way, not just because he's immutable and doesn't change, but just by virtue of of his essence and being, he is the prime agent. He is not subject to flow. He's not subject to change. He is always the same. And so even if if I accept that orthodox principle, then I cannot say, even in the face of pouring out God's wrath on his own son, that he would suddenly grimace in sorrow for what's happening because this has been a part of his plan since the creation of man. Yeah. No, since before the foundation of the earth, he knew this would happen. And so, yes, I am certain that it was uh, something like we would call painful for uh, an eternal being like God. Um, but that does not mean 
that we can then attribute the we cannot then anthropomorphize God and attribute all of these human behaviors to him. And wouldn't that also create a kind of sundering in the Trinity because on the one hand we're we're acknowledging that Christ is in unity of purpose with the Father. And yet Christ could endure the suffering, but God can't, like God can't even, the Father can't even look at it. That would make no sense that God the Son could endure the suffering itself, but that God the Father had to turn his face away because he couldn't bear the wounds which marred the chosen one. What has God lost? What has God the Father lost? What is the pain of searing loss? What is he losing? That would then, that see, that could suggest the separation. Mm-hmm. Right or a change in the Godhead yeah. too. It's much better to view it in the Orthodox view that it's the Trinity enacting the plan of salvation at its culmination in tandem. The three persons of the Godhead acting in tandem here, yeah. not three separate actors yes. playing these very passionate different roles. Yes. I don't think that's very helpful. So there really is. It's really hard to find, I guess, a charitable way. To interpret that line, even even a even a more charitable version, which says he's just turning his face away because of the pain that he's experiencing or the pain that he's seeing, even that creates some challenges with orthodox views of the Godhead. I think that you can hold a position that God is more satisfied with Christ than he is dissatisfied with sin without necessarily diminishing sin at all. It's just a yeah. greater than sign. But he also has to be more satisfied with Christ because that's how we are saved. Yes, and how could he right. not be? Yeah. How could he not be? Right. It, in right. fact, it, 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 it glorifies Christ. That's right. To say, he is far greater than I could ever even right. be evil, and look how evil I can be. Right. And it's hard because I am, you know, the, the world and, you know, Unfortunately, the church even constantly is minimizing sin. It's constantly minimizing the seriousness of sin. And so, so every part of you want, you know, people that are more theologically conservative are wanting to reject that, right? And for many good, for good reasons, but you can't, it's just like any pendulum swing, right? If you start swinging away on one side, you, you start leaving orthodoxy at some point. And you, if you take something to its conclusion, you start to see where it goes. And I think this song has helped me see the problem with taking the penalty of sin so far that it actually diminishes what Christ's righteousness and obedience to the Father actually does. It over there is something greater than our sin. It's Christ's obedience and his righteousness. You're giving a very generous motive to churches that want to sure. sing this. They they want theological purity and they want to they want to emphasize the gravity of sin. I fear for the church that underplays the gravity of sin and then also in the same vain, argues that somehow our sin could topple the unity of the Godhead. Yeah. What are you then saying about the Godhead? Yes. Yeah. It's even worse. Yeah, I agree. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. I think it's a very clear song. It tells a clear story. It it 
clearly describes sin. It clearly describes the love of God through what Christ endured, although with with the exception of this line, I mean, it certainly gets to penal substitutionary atonement very well, even if it carries it to a a place where neither you or I are comfortable. Yeah. But it does really portray the necessity of Christ going to the cross, that it's not mere, the love of God in in the cross is not merely seen in like Christ showing what sacrifice looks like, mm-hmm. right? It's not merely seen in an example, but no, Christ is atoning for our sin. And this song just portrays that really, really nicely. We also have in the third verse of this song, this rhetorical question, why should I gain oh, from yeah. his reward? I cannot give an answer. Who and whoever will be able to answer? The only answer is the title of the song. It is because God's love for us is so deep that not only can he forgive us of what we've done, he can forgive us of murdering his only begotten son. Although the singer should be able to give an answer because the answer has just been portrayed in front of him. If we have an us-centric view of the love of God, then we will say, man, I just can't comprehend why God, because I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, and yet God loves me. That's very confusing. But the answer, of course, is that God loves us because we are in Christ, right? That's part of the great exchange side of the atonement. So, and maybe maybe Stuart Townend could have emphasized that more in this song. Instead of saying, I cannot give an answer for why we should gain. No, we we gain not we're still thinking about ourselves at that point if we're if we can't answer that question because the answer is not found in us and which we know but we have to look outside of us now and say no no the reason we can gain is because of what Christ did we we receive the righteousness of Christ Christ willingly going onto the cross that level of righteousness is given to us right we don't just merely receive Christ's perfect obedience in the fact that he like did what God said by obeying the law during his daily life. We get that. But we we also get the righteousness. Like we would never go to the cross. If it were us, we wouldn't go to the cross, yeah. right? But Christ, only Christ could do that. And yet we receive the credit for all of Christ's obedience and righteousness. Would you recommend singing this song in corporate worship? Man, I don't know if I could recommend this song for corporate worship. That might be enough. To, to sync the song. Yeah. Especially in the same service that you sing something like, there is no shadow of turning with thee. <laughs> yeah. That, Thou <laughs> changest not. <laughs> yeah. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou has been, thou forever will be. Immutable. I think I'm going to have to say no. At, at the, unless someone can change my mind. And so I encourage some listener, let me know why I've got this wrong. But... I don't know that I would suggest doing this song. I came prepared to give it a a yes with some caveats. <laughs> Me too. And I I think I may be I it's certainly up in the air, but I think the chips may fall on a no for me too. Okay, well what yeah. what would you give this? Are you ready for that? Well, I guess. Yeah. So before we had this conversation, I was prepared to give it 4 out of 5, but I am I think I have to give it a two out of five, and I'm giving it two out of five flat caps. 
It's a British style cap. The one Stuart he was wearing Tannen. in the yes. interview. Yes. Colin, when I watched that video, I looked at it and I knew that he was English before I watched it. But as soon as his picture came up on the screen and he had that hat and the shirt, I just looked at him and said, yeah. that is the most English looking yeah. man he just I needs have to ever smi- seen. He just needs to smile and we can see whether he's got good teeth or not. That would be, oh, the, God, that would be the clincher. So Did you know that the British don't realize that we all think their teeth are terrible? It's just, they don't realize it. But, you know, Come to a de- come to a dentist in some other country. Our British friends that are listening, you'll oh. it'll be revolutionary. Yeah. So I, it, it is a real stereotype. If you if you're if you're curious, people really do have that stereotype of the English. I'm not saying it's justified. I'm just saying that's you true. Just, Maybe I should just say the English to spare our Welsh and Scottish and Northern yeah, Irish friends. Yeah. I actually came prepared to give this a four out of five five fours. It's a very cheeky rating, so... Because of the... Because it's a yeah, one... Yeah, because of the... Father's yeah. Yeah. Clever. Four out of five, so, five fours. I, but then I was like, okay, I'll have to dock at a point for this father turning his face away. But now I have to dock at another point for the pain of searing loss that I'm not sure we can attribute to an unchanging yeah. godhead. Yeah. Can't say he loses something. It, yeah, there's a lot of problems with that. So I think I have to give it a two out of five, five fours. <laughs> Two out of five, five fours. What an interesting episode. <laughs> I came in prepared for something else. You came in prepared for something else. And through yeah. the collision of ideas and thoughts, yeah. we came at a very different conclusion. Listeners, if you have feedback, please write yeah. to us. I would love to sort through emails. Please, if you have hate yeah. mail, send them yeah. just to Colin's email address. We, we are certainly happy to revisit this. And in fact, we, we're going to revisit... The other Stuart Townend song we reviewed as well, because a listener brought up some some thoughts about that that are pretty helpful. So uh, yeah, do please write us a write us a review, send us an email, tell your friends, and most of all, though, we just thank you for listening to this episode of the Worship Review, and we will catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at Anchor FM slash The Worship Review and Patreon.com slash The Worship Review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.